Всем добрый вечер. Hello, welcome to Tochny Weekly, the show that gets behind the headlines to discuss the full-scale Russian invasion of Ukraine. We broadcast every week at this time, 1800 UTC. Please do follow the main account for more information about any future projects we do. Uh, a recording of this broadcast and all of our content can be found on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and a variety of other podcast platforms. So please do follow us on the podcast platform of your choice. We do have an excellent show for you this week. Uh, first, we're going to discuss the situation in Western Ukraine. The next topic will be the role of artillery in the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And then we have an excellent panel discussion on recent military events. So without any delay, Bianade will be interviewing Joseph Place on the situation in Ukraine in Zakarpatia, the region in Western Ukraine. Joseph Place is a politics PhD student in political philosophy. Uh, he's lived in Ukraine for three years, and he's also a member of NAFO. He's the co-creator of the Fellas Think Tank podcast, which has new episodes weekly. I'll turn it over to Bianade, but first we have a question from Jonathan. Joe, welcome to Tochny. Could you tell us a little bit about what brought you to Ukraine? So it's very somewhat typical and very personal Many years ago, I was teaching English in Vietnam, and I met my would-be wife there. She was also teaching English. She's from Ukraine. And we UK immigration for Ukrainians at that time was very difficult. And because I've spent time outside of UK for a while, it was very difficult for me to bring her to UK. And we came to Ukraine for a little bit, right, for a few months. And then it ended up being about three years So because I really liked living there. Uh, we liked our life there. And this is pretty much why we ended up staying here. And it's been my home, and it, I do consider it my home now. Thank you. That's very interesting. It's nice to have you there. Thank you. Would you like to tell us a little bit about, about your uh, professional background uh, and uh, what's, sure. what's interesting in the region for you? So my background is, uh, as um, was said at the start, so I'm doing a PhD uh, in political philosophy, political theory. But basically since living in Ukraine, I I got more and more academically interested in Ukrainian politics and understanding the situation. Uh, I have a particular interest in matters of uh, linguistic justice and Zakopati is a is actually a, a perfect region to discuss these things because there is real linguistic diversity here. And I, I will get into this. I don't want to get ahead of myself. So this region is, you know, currently this is I, so i'm in ushgrud right so this is a city that's right on the border with slovakia it's a really beautiful city it's one of the actually zakopatia uh, has had one missile strike the whole war and that was in a town called volovets they hit a factory uh so it's really safe here so a lot of people from all over ukraine have come here and the population of ushgrud which is the main zakopatian city along with mukachevo the population is about triple It's a very interesting time to be here right now. A lot of people from Kiev, eastern Ukraine, uh, now are living here, and it has its challenges. Yeah, I can can imagine. Uh, we, we will talk later about the challenges, maybe a little bit about the background uh, from from this region. So, let's see. Yeah, 
there on this picture, um, there's a mountain range, um, which is more or less a natural barrier, right, uh, to the, to the east. The, yes. the climate is slightly different in the south because, yeah. yes. And, uh, yeah, it's uh, a really interesting area. Can you tell us a little bit about the history of, of this region? Yeah, so as you, you, you identified, so Zakopatia or Transcarpathia is the other name. This is a region that is like after the mountain, so to speak. It's it, Although Zakopatia does include regions which are in the Carpathian Mountains completely. And it's it's very interesting because it's it's been uh, very much a meeting point between various cultures and various identities, languages for the longest time. And uh, you also said about the, the climate. It's true. Zakopatian climate is, is milder than most of Ukraine. So the winters aren't as harsh and the summers aren't quite as harsh. It's a great wine region too. A lot of wine grow here. That's uh, another point. So the history of the region is very interesting. Basically, there has been what we would call Ruthenians or, or Rusins here who are like the pro the people who are sort of the ancestors of Ukrainians, let's say, in this region for a long time, and Hungarians as well. And also, more recently, it's like, I mean, I'm talking like in the last uh, millennium, it's been more, you know, a mix of what we would consider Hungarians, Slovakians, Polish people, things like that in the last like 400 years or so. And it's, to this day, it's still a very linguistically diverse thing. To give a brief history, it was part of what was Hungary uh, for most of its history and Austro-Hungary for a very long time. Though a lot of Ukrainians and Slovaks and other people lived here in this region. And if you go into the mountains, there are other ethnic minorities, such as the Hutsuls and other like, ethnic groups that are minorities, but they're sort of tribal mountain groups. And there's also quite a large Roma population in this region too. And for until World War II, there was also a very sizable Jewish population here. Also, on the fact of minorities, a, I actually recently found out that there was quite a lot of Bulgarians and other people who basically came here to do farming and would sell things. And that was a major part of the Uzhur specifically. Sorry, to wrap up the history, it was mostly part of like Hungary. It was major part of Austro-Hungary. Then what happened after the Treaty of Trianon after World War II, it then became part of Czechoslovakia. The Czechoslovaks gave this region a lot of autonomy, which they did not have under Hungary. And this really, like, the Ukrainian identity really flourished in this region. Basically, though, what happened in World War II in 1939, uh, Czechoslovakia was annexed, uh, you know, it was basically destroyed. And in that sort of chaos, there was actually a a little Ukrainian republic. It lasted one day, but they declared they wanted sovereignty. But then basically, Slovakia, the Nazi puppet state, had no real power. The Hungarians decided they would take the land back. You know, they felt it was their rightful land, and they came and they crushed the rebellion in one day. Uh, and then after that, in 19... Oh, I can't remember the year exactly. I think it was 1944, when the Soviets came, they, quote-unquote, liberated this region and returned it into uh, the Ukrainian Soviet Republic. So, And then it became officially part of Ukraine's borders. And then after 1991, it was part of Ukraine, and it is still part of Ukraine to this day. I think that's a brief overview I could give of the region. I hope that's sufficient. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. I heard you are interested in language policies. How was it working in the last 20 years, 30 years? As I said, there's a real linguistic diversity here. So 
uh, I actually like the little to start off with an example. There is a school here in Uzgur, like a very old school uh, from the 1910s or something. You can go there, and, the, and people have been graffitiing on these bricks since it's been made. And you can see graffiti in Ukrainian, in Slovakian, in Hungarian, possibly some other languages too. So it really shows that this has been a very long-standing mixed region. But within Zakopachi as well, it changes from town to town, village to village. Uh, and basically, if you go further south towards the town of Berohova, it's really Hungarian-speaking. You know, everyone speaks Hungarian. They can speak Ukrainian now, but it's always been very Hungarian-speaking. And so they've been given in this, this not just Zakopachi, but in their specific region, they have decided that everything will be in two languages. So things can be in Hungarian and Ukrainian. The, the Ukrainian language law deter, it means everything has to be in Ukrainian, right? But there's nothing stopping someone having two languages. That is absolutely completely acceptable. For, the, for quite a long time, really until 2014, in some parts of Zakopatia, Hungarian was the norm. The schools were teaching Hungarian. And this led to kind of a bit of a segregation. I have a friend who went to a school in Chop, which is also on the border with Hungary. And he said there was basically a divide within the school of the Hungarians and the Ukrainians. And people felt very quite strongly about this. So when the language laws changed in, um, well, it began under Poroshenko, the previous president before Zelensky, to bolster Ukrainian. There was some debate. Hungary, Hungary didn't like it. And they said, that, oh, you're oppressing the Hungarian speakers. And some people here didn't really like it. So the law is that secondary schools had to be in Ukrainian. You couldn't have a secondary school, high school, whatever you want to call it, in anything but Ukrainian. Primary schools can be. So primary schools can be in Hungarian or Slovakian or whatever. Uh, and private schools can be. In the center of Russia, there's even a, still a uh, Slovakian school. But basically, there has been more push towards having Ukrainians because there was a bit of an issue here of people not being able to speak Ukrainian, so they wouldn't go to Ukrainian universities. They'd rather go abroad to Hungary or something like this. So generally, there has been a push. Now, what is very fascinating, probably if you asked me about 15 months ago and I was talking about it, it would probably be like that still. People are unhappy, people kind of speaking Hungarian, a lot of parts and other things. It's changed since the war. A lot of people who were considered themselves Hungarian or primarily spoke Hungarian felt very betrayed by Hungary. And now more and more people are speaking Ukrainian. Uh, I have a friend who told me how there was one Hungarian school and they had like 12 applications like for students, whereas normally it would be hundreds. People don't feel affinity for the Hungarian identity anymore. People might speak it, but it's it's really changed since the invasion. Uh, another great success for Russia because they like to foster this division within society, right? Uh, yeah, that's what I have to say on this, but that is sort of a brief overview of the linguistic uh, policies in this region. Very interesting topics. So, uh, and another topic about the bordering regions, and maybe let's also come back to what Zakapatia is mainly mm -hmm. uh, known for also uh, in, in Ukraine. Many people used it to make holidays, right? There's much tourism there, right? It still is. still is. Very touristic. This weekend was the last week of the school, and so it's been very busy here. Lots of people are coming here within Ukraine, especially because, you know, it's quite difficult for people to travel abroad if you have got men in the family. But it's always been the case. People come here in the spring because there are cherry blossoms, the sakura trees. And people love to come here to say to see the, the blossoms, take photos. And yes, it's a wine region. It's a it's a cool it's a different climate. And it's just it's got a, just a bit of a different feel to a lot of Ukraine. So it, you, you, don't, you don't have to go abroad, but you can have a different feel 
if that makes sense. Yeah. Let's, let's maybe go to the things which basically change now through the invasion. As far as I understand, it's more like a hub um, for people who want to go outside of Ukraine uh, if they if they can. For other people, uh, many many refugee trains into other European countries starting there, and also many internally displaced people are living there in this region now. How would you describe the change um, for, for this region? Yeah. Actually, the trains themselves here don't go into the other countries. If you want to get the train to Hungary, you need to go to Chop, south of here. Uh, you can see on the map what I've actually still got in front of me. But yes, it is a major transfer how people come here. There are a lot of buses come from Slovakia. And so this is a great place. Uh, you, you do get as well volunteers here now. There's UNICEF established Red Cross giving aid to Red Cross Ukraine, the good one, not the, uh, the, the one that everyone hates. So what has really changed, as I said earlier, the population here has basically tripled. This does make it difficult in many ways for housing, the schools, and for general prices. So there isn't, it's not like a serious tension, but there is a little bit of a resentment from some locals, let's say, towards some of the, the wave of refugees. Because whilst many of us would probably picture refugees as very poor, it's not all that. You have people who've come from Kiev, from Kharkiv, who have a lot of money, and they've risen, the prices have gone up a lot. So this is also a problem. This is a problem affecting all of Ukraine, but it's felt quite acutely here. And so accommodation, for example, I mean, me and my wife, we were very fortunate. We found accommodation here quite easily because there's just two of us and maybe we, we, we have less demands. But you know, for people with families, and it's, it's quite, it is quite hard to find accommodation here. Or if you perhaps have a government salary, something that's not paid in dollars, you find it very hard to afford things. And local people as well are, are a bit pushed out of this. So this is possibly the biggest change. And when you're just walking around the street, yeah, okay, it's busy, it can get really busy. And you, you hear a lot more Russian because you have a lot of people who come from the eastern Kiev who speak Russian. Whereas before, yeah, okay, actually, quite a lot of my friends here used to speak Russian, although now they've switched to Ukrainian. Generally, mm, you do just hear a bit more Russian on the street than you used to do. We used to hear a lot more Ukrainian in Ushurit specifically, because uh, Ushurit is more Ukrainian than other parts of Zakopati, where there's a lot more Hungarian or Slovakian, as I said. Yeah, I can imagine there are big changes and uh, especially challenges. Maybe some is not. Remember, we had uh, this, this great segment with Zorin about self-governance, how the municipalities and uh, the local uh, government uh, are financing themselves, right? Local services, everything is mm. getting financed about the uh, personal income tax. Usually you pay the personal income tax there where your company has their, has their headquarters, right? Um, since many, many people are still working for, example, uh, as their companies and now living more in the West, I can imagine there's a, is a big stress in this region um, because they don't really get the budget out of the uh, personal income tax, right? Yeah. So, sorry, just to add to that, yeah, because you're correct. In Ukraine, when you pay taxes, usually you pay where you are registered. And while some people are coming in registering, you're correct. Like uh, The money usually goes back to other regions, which is good in many ways to help these regions. But yeah, it, it can deprive the local regions of the money they need. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, when we are talking about the region of Uskul, how has it changed from the living standards, the, the people which are coming? I remember you mentioned something about the housing. Uh, they're looking for, for, for new properties, right? Yes. So it's a, a lot of people now are coming and they're coming to buy property. Uh, some people have, all, they, effectively, they understand that they can't go back to where they lived or they don't feel safe there. So if they live in the east or maybe in Kiev or something, people are trying to buy property. What's fascinating here is that there's a lot of new developments on the edge of the city, which is quite common in Ukraine. And in Ushuid, it's quite flat. So it's quite easy to develop land. A lot of these people, they want to buy these new flats, these new, new shiny things. 
problem is a lot of these aren't even built yet although they're still being built so this is kind of putting a bit of a problem on it but yeah a lot of people will take this as their home and so Ushka's population has effectively double tripled and it probably will stay that way and yet the infrastructure has not developed for that and so we're going to have problems with i don't know probably traffic probably electricity plumbing who knows especially if people want these new developments on the edge of the city it could really quite change the character of the region i don't think too much but yeah because when you look at housing in the center uh there is housing like old places they don't want that these are actually surprisingly available long term uh one of my friends said their flats in the city center this old building was for sale for like a year no one bought it but if it was something in a new area outside, they would buy it. Because people want the, the new shiny houses. I, I don't know what that says about it, but it, I think it is interesting. Yeah, absolutely. So um, from, from my side, I'm, I'm almost through with my questions. One of my, my our Ukrainian listeners and friends wants to come up uh, and, and have questions. Um, the panel is open now. Also, uh, Joe, if you have a topic you want to mention or uh, an anecdote uh, you, you want to tell us uh, exclusively, feel free. Yeah, I, I would just sort of add that being here in Ushwood is a very surreal experience because you are so far away from the war. And yeah, okay, you hear the sirens, but unlike when you're in Kiev, which I was recently, you know, you don't get explosions, you don't get this risk. Okay, you, you do worry because it means someone somewhere might be getting killed, but you almost feel normal. But then you will see someone, you'll see a soldier who has been crippled or you hear a story of some friend, someone's died. And it reminds you of that. And you also, we get to enjoy the privilege of being free and safe here because of those who are defending. And it's important to remember that. I certainly remember that. I'm always donating and doing what I can to help Ukraine. I think sometimes though it can get a little bit just surreal being here because you can kind of almost forget sometimes. I think some people might. I do recommend coming to Ushurud and Zakopati in general. I just want to say that it's a beautiful place. It's very surreal. It's it's historic. It's artsy. There's so much to do. So much beautiful nature. It's just, I recommend everyone to come uh, whenever you feel safe to do so. I, I'm not going to promote anything else. I want to talk about anything else. I want to talk about this in Ukraine today. So I, I think that's pretty much it. If anyone has questions, I'm more than happy to answer. Thank you very much. And uh, I see uh, Erlend has a question, and uh, after this, uh, Jonathan has also a question. So please, Erlend. Yeah, thank you very much, uh, Bernard, and thank you, Joseph. I would like to ask you, as a foreigner in Ukraine, um, mm -hmm. what do you like most about Ukraine and Ukrainians? And how do you feel the perception of you know foreigners in general is in Ukraine? Maybe before the war, that's what I'm wondering more about than, than the situation right now. That's a really good question. So first of all, what do I like about Ukraine? Ukraine is huge, and there's so much to see and do, and there's so much fascinating history. Uh, that is something that really appeals to me. And something I love here, which I feel, I, I noticed, that the, I didn't really notice what I liked about it here. It's a funny thing. Like when I, I, used, I lived in Kiev before the war and i would complain about things and then when i left i realized how great it was and how great living in ukraine was one of the things i love most here is there is just a, such a sense of freedom and a a sense of respect for freedom and that things are, have to be hard won and you, you were just given a sense of responsibility and freedom in your day-to-day -day life here that you don't i don't know uk we've kind of began to there's so much social pressure and rules and unwritten things and bureaucracy 
And here, I don't know, it just feels very free. And I just really like that sense of freedom. There are problems from this, of course, which I could get into if we want to. But generally, yeah, I don't know, this is very... And people, they seem to speak the language of freedom, I could say, almost. I like that. Now, uh, about perception of a, as a foreigner. Before the war, okay, in Kiev, it wasn't a novelty at all. You are very much... There's a lot of foreigners in Kiev. Actually, there still are. Especially in places like this, or when I've been traveling in like random rural places... Curiosity is the main thing as a foreigner. Why are you here? Why did you come here? And if they find out, like, you know, oh, you actually speak a little bit Ukrainian. Oh, it's like, oh, well done. Thank you. It's, yeah, it's curiosity. But, you know, I never experienced anything negative. I, I can say that quite comfortably. I generally enjoyed my time. It's definitely, it took me a bit of time to adjust and get used to it and to feel more integrated. Uh, happens with time the language barrier can be quite difficult and so i think if you want to live here long term you need to speak some other language but i don't know generally i enjoy being a, a foreigner here I, I feel okay uh and i feel slowly integrated uh, i hope that answers your question yeah thank you very much that's great i i wonder also if you could highlight some of the challenges of being a foreigner you said that sometimes i think <laughs> There are some problems with the freedoms and, and maybe some problems with system, I guess. Uh, yeah, so some things I don't like. There's definitely a, there's still problems that I feel in the West we've done a bit better to overcome, you know. Uh, environmental respect, uh, cleanliness is, is quite problematic. Obviously, you talk, you've got the social issues like LGBT rights and stuff like that. That It's not where it's near as it is in the West. That is something that's changing, and um, but it, it, it is still here. And as a foreigner, navigating like, bureaucracy, like state bureaucracy, can be a real headache. That is something that needs to change to access to certain services. Uh, there's a lot of presumed knowledge when you're dealing with certain like state bodies deal with stuff because they're not used to foreigners, so some things aren't set up that way. That is a challenge I've definitely experienced. But, you know, once you're out of the government office, you know, it's, it's okay. <laughs> All right, Jonathan. Ah, thanks. Uh, being on a, uh, thanks, Joe. It's it's terrifically interesting having have, uh, listening to you and having you on. Thank you. My question to you is this: This week we've we've seen more news uh, regarding the abducted Ukrainian children held in either Russian-occupied Ukraine or deported to Russia itself. One news item relating to this, our live listeners can reference in the nest. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, how you have witnessed Zakopatia becoming a safe haven? people who have managed to escape filtration uh, or have sought refuge in your last yeah so i came here uh, what last october time so i missed the first wave let's say but you know so that was when we had a lot of stories about schools uh have it holding people now that's still the case so i i do know this i have seen this quite recently a lot of the schools switched back to remote learning because they have to host so many refugees of people who came I, I can't remember what city it was i think it was more actually it would make sense um people came here and they needed a place to stay and basically the infrastructure was a bit overwhelmed so yeah people who stay in schools and they and, and they would sleep in schools. so yeah uh i know people whose kids and now go back to online learning like it was covid times which is actually better because with the sirens going off it can really interrupt your schooling and in and, and terms of other things you know here you can see as I said earlier, UNICEF, uh, in the city center, there's a place where uh, parents can go. They can get like free stuff to help them, their children. You can donate clothes. So I go and donate any like old clothes I don't fit into anymore. 
you can go there, you can give stuff, you can help out if you want to. There's a lot of these bodies. And so there is just generally a sense here of that this is a safe haven, this is a place of support, as you said. And yeah, you you, you don't see it day to day, but you feel it and you do see these these infrastructure services set up to help people and whenever you take a bus or a train out of the country or something you you, you know you see people uh, from these regions on there so you do you do meet them maybe not every day but you don't have to go too long before you meet that or you know you, you hear a story from someone like oh so and so helped these people or uh actually another thing that i have personally experienced i've been looking at flats here with my wife and quite a lot of them saying yeah i'm gonna sell this flat but for now i'm just letting these refugees live here for free it's quite a common thing um for people to do so people are you know going out of their way to help the ukrainians which is nice that's very interesting thank you joe all right so uh thank you for being here just again uh, if if you are interested and in joe's opinions um please uh visit uh, his podcast visit his profile Let's get back to our next segment. Joseph. Thank you, Bionato. So uh, up next, we have our military segments, which Charles will be moderating. But uh, we do have a special guest, of course. Uh, we have uh, CJ here. CJ is a field artillery officer in the 82nd Airborne Division of the U.S. Army, and he is eminently experienced to talk about the role of artillery in the full-scale Russian invasion of Ukraine. So uh, with that, I'll turn it over to you, Charles. Thanks a lot, Joseph, and, and thanks a lot, Bionata, for that insight into Ukrainian life. To be honest, we had a story planned today, kind of a discussion with CJ, uh, with John Ridge, Artois, Erland, Andrew, and myself about artillery topics. But instead, I'd like to turn things around a little bit and kind of start with, you know, what has happened over the last 12 to 24 hours in Ukraine, because we have seen pretty significant attacks in the south. And and maybe I'll just sort of uh, turn it over to CJ. Hello. Um, how are you? And is there anything you want to want to jump into, CJ? Yeah, thanks for uh, having me here. Yeah, there's a lot. I'm not sure I obviously want Andrew Artois or anyone else who's been following the news more closely to jump in. But basically, the, the two major items that I've seen that are extremely in interesting and indicate to me the, the beginning of a new phase in the war and, and a phase that's going to be very much so in Ukraine's favor is in the field of fires. Uh, and that includes lethal and non-lethal fires. So starting with non-lethal, um, there was a massive cyber attack in Crimea today. Of course, there have been more and more strikes in Crimea, which has been occupied by Russia since 2014. And, and this is really in the realm of, of shaping operations. But basically what happened was uh, all of the uh, broadcast TVs were hacked and started playing messages relevant to the counteroffensive in one way or another. And so the residents there and also the soldiers there got to see that something is coming so that that will have an effect on the battlefield as well. In terms of fires, you know, Andrew and Artois have, have pointed out just the massive increase in strikes in Zaporizhia. And these, this includes storm shadow strikes in Mariupol and Berdyansk and an uptick in HIMARS strikes much closer to the lines. And with that, that only leaves the ground attacks that have begun in the last 12 hours. Um, perhaps uh, not just a reconnaissance necessarily. You know, we, we think it might be upwards of at least a brigade attacking. Um, and this is really key because it's over a massive amount of area. So People that are worried about OPSEC worry not. This is coming mostly from Russian sources as they try and figure out what exactly is happening to them as they're attacked uh, along multiple points on the line. Um, and there's sort of a general chaos, uh, you know, of course, compounded by the fact 
that there is cross-border fire into Russia itself and another wave of attacks helping um, in, in Belgrade as well. So I guess that's what I'd, I'd start off with as an overview. Yeah, thanks a lot, CJ. So so the way that I'd like to do this is we have really a fantastic panel with uh, Artois, Andrew, Erlen, John, you and, and, and all the others is... Let's start with the ground attacks. Maybe we can turn it over to you, Andrew, in terms of what exactly has happened on the ground. And then let's bring it back to fires and we will see, you know, we can get into more of the artillery side um, from CJ. But let's start with the ground attacks. What is what are you seeing that has happened in the last 12 to 24 hours, Andrew? All right. So today, Ukraine seemed to have attacked in two spots. One is the a more significant attack, which uh, rumors have it may be up to a brigade. And this took place near Vlikanovaselka, which is uh, just west of Vuladar. Ukraine attacked south from Novopil towards uh, Novodarivka. They attacked south of Novosilka towards uh, Rivnapil. And they attacked south from Vremivka towards Neskuchna. Now, there's some differing reports on what exactly has happened. We have video from the attack toward Rifnapil, where the Ukrainians, uh, unfortunately, took uh, pretty significant casualties. They lost at least three armored vehicles. I think maybe it may have been five or seven. And the, the Russians are really kind of posting this video everywhere, saying that the whole attack was a complete failure. There are separate reports that Ukraine successfully captured Neskuchna and Novodarivka, although I have not seen firm evidence that this is true. So it's uh, kind of the full extent is kind of up in the air. But we, we know for sure that they have moved south towards Rivnapil, that they covered about a kilometer of ground south, and it may have been even further. They may have captured those two towns. Now, separately, uh, completely separately from this, they also attacked south from Malatokmaka, which is near Orhiv. I think this was more of a, a recon sort of movement, um, not not super uh, interesting, definitely not as big of an attack as the other one, but it is uh, nonetheless a second attack in Zaporizhia that happened today. Um, thanks a lot. Just to kind of orient us, our, us and, and the listeners, so we're talking about a rumored to be a brigade-sized attack uh, west of Vuladar um, along the uh, Zaporizhia-Donetsk oblast border is is that about right so towards the south is that correct yeah it it, it is taking place in both zaporizhia and um and donetsk um rifnapil is kind of the border between the two oblasts and uh so Novodarivka would be in zaporizhia and uh, neskuchna is in donetsk thanks a lot now now cj you talked about an increase in lethal fires uh, i'll start with that with that side first you know did did you see a preparation for this attack using artillery uh, tube and mlrs and storm shadow or was this something that happened simultaneously what's your analysis of the lethal fire side well yes the uh lethal fires so the biggest things that have been attacked constantly all throughout the winter have been these barracks all across Zaporizhia and Donetsk, you know, areas outside of normal artillery range where Russia was putting conscripts, rotating people through, and those were getting hit constantly. The biggest change over the last two or three weeks, of course, has been the storm shadows, which have gone after maintenance facilities. Uh, I, I believe it's probably drones going after oil facilities, but sort of those uh, operational level targets 
ones that don't just impact the, the troops at a single point in the front, but multiple points at the front. And that's what's been hit in the last couple of weeks because, you know, yes, we, we all acknowledge here Russia has many, quote unquote, defensive lines prepared. But if they have, don't have a, an ability to quickly react, repair, refit troops, then they're, they're going to kind of be stuck where, wherever they're at. And, and that's the biggest thing here, I think, that Ukraine has been going after is sort of this ability for Russia to move its its forces quickly. And, and that's what you're seeing getting hit. And I'll also note in the specific area that Andrew mentioned that was coming under attack um, is somewhat of a pocket. Uh, it's a high concentration of Russian troops, of course, but it's there for good reason. And I, I put it up in the map uh, on the nest. You can see our tour has kind of pointed out this general area. But if you go southeast of this 100 kilometers, you have the Sea of Azov. And what you have much further north, so within HIMARS range almost, is the east to west running ground line of communication or GLOC, the ability to reinforce and refuel and rearm across all of southern Ukraine. Uh, if this area is taken by Ukraine, then they're going to be able to inflict fires on those roads. And that's going to make Kherson harder to hold. It'll make Donetsk harder to hold. It, it could cause very problems with just five to 10 kilometers captured here. Yeah. So, I mean, let's sort of dive a little bit into the exact region of this attack. I know we don't have all the maps up in the nest. And, and uh, it, of course, it's an audio space podcast. But of course, we're talking um, basically at the, I would say, five o'clock position uh, of the front. And I, I know that in other discussions, we've talked about the the GLOC importance of Volnovaka, which is not too far from the front line. So basically direct south from Vuladar and, and Donut City. When you're looking at this, are you looking at this saying, yeah, this is this is the direction of the attack, this makes sense, or is it just too early to see? Definitely too early to say. I mean, I don't want to go on too much of a limb, but to, you know, the purpose of this whole thing is to kind of be a bit, um, you know, hypothetical. And I think you look at this terrain and you see a lot of flat open areas. You see a couple rivers. It's a lot of farming country. But you also see... Politically, it's on the border uh, in between Donetsk Oblast and Zaporizhia Oblast. So what does this mean? It's sort of a natural seam that exists, depending on how you understand how the Russian military defends these things. They may not have the best command and control in this area, as it is two different Oblasts. And, and more importantly, the fact that there's a natural river running north to south sort of in this area will prohibit quick movement uh, across. So we look at as to what might be a good area to attack. This seems like it's it. But I'll also note that, yes, as Andrew pointed out, perhaps Ukraine suffered some casualties in one of these attacks. But I believe it was Max Pros and M113 armored vehicles from that, that predate Vietnam, right? So what we're not seeing are these Western-armed NATO-trained brigades necessarily taking casualties. We're seeing reconnaissance units or Ukrainian units that have been trained for quite some time. So Still no sign necessarily of all the new kit and gear that probably will be associated with the main effort. So not necessarily the most devastating losses per se, but an interesting start uh, to say the least. Uh, thanks. You know, this area of the line, you know, we've been talking for months about the fortifications that have been built uh, along this southern front and the depth of fortifications, especially around Tokmak. What what have we seen in this area of the front in terms of the strength and the depth of fortifications? So the uh, there's a lot of pros and cons, of course, to digging in. The, the issue with this area is there's not necessarily a lot of natural terrain 
to uh, fortify your position, right? So the strength of your positions and the strength of the, of the defenses is going to really come down to how much you dig. But as someone who's military myself and, and you were formerly, you know, you could see a bunch of trenches, you could see a bunch of machine gun pits, and you could know the enemy has, uh, you know, a bunch of ammunition and weapons, but that's not really the full picture. That's not the information you, you need. You need to know, you know, how they're going to defend it. How are they going to respond to an attack? And I guess I, I would just defer to Thomas Siner or other people that kind of point out that Russia doesn't have enough people to man all these defensive lines. You know, they don't have the ability to defend in depth. You, won't, you know, we talk about one of the reasons why Bakhmut was defended so strongly for so long was because with very little people, they could, you know, expose Russia to a huge amount of risk over a long period of time. And, and just that's not the case here. You know, one line is breached. It's going to be hard for Russia to guess where Ukraine is coming. I mean, for for the in instance today, with the brigade size attack, you know, it's highly likely that that's not where the main effort is. It's going to come from somewhere else. And so now Russia has to make a deliberate decision, both with their aircraft and their artillery and their people. Do they go try and reinforce this area or do they go elsewhere? And, and so it's one of those things where it's too much space to cover with too few people. And it really lends itself well to Ukraine attacking it if they have everything need, the ammo, the fuel to sustain the attack for for quite some time. Thanks a lot. And and that elsewhere is also very important. Um, of course, we're seeing news of another incursion uh, into Russia on the north northern front. And of course, more news out of Bakhmut that Ukrainians may have some kind of presence in Bakhmut again. So that will be interesting to see. Uh, I want to go to Erland and then John. Erland, please. Yeah, thank you. So last week we talked about the raids, and I don't think we can say that it's a raid now, but there is something happening inside Russia or inside the Russian borders again. And I feel like that these volunteers that are doing these operations inside the Russian borders are doing this to kind of test the waters with Russia. How, how much does it take before they actually commit to repel these attacks and and make sure that the ukrainians cannot just walk over the border because that's what it seems like they can do do you think they're gonna uh, repeat them or try them in different areas until they they will get a reaction or do you think they they might try to even go even even further in to provoke something that will destabilize some of the the other tactics that Russia will have had to plan when it comes to the defense. CJ, if you have a response, go ahead. And I'd like to welcome Language Learner to the panel. Hi, Language. Hi, thank you guys for having me. I hope everyone's doing well. Great. So, um, CJ, any thoughts on the incursion, the raid into Belgorod Oblast? You know, I'm not here to comment on the, the politics of the people that might or might not be uh, attacking parts of Russia. But what I will say, it's very interesting to see of course, because uh, that's my job, how they artillerize the situation or use fire. So, you know, as far as I could see in, in the first attack, whatever you want to call it, cross-border uh, raid in force, it was supported by at least, you know, mortars and, and a couple other systems. But it wasn't necessarily supported with the full breadth of Ukrainian army uh, firepower. And over time, I, I mean, even today, it's not exactly clear with Chilenko and some other places who exactly is shooting at what. But what we do know is, and we've seen the firm's data, which, again, please take it with a gigantic grain of salt, but it, there are massive artillery duels now happening in Belgorod uh, in conjunction with the ground assault, uh, assault. And that's an important distinction because previously, of course, 
both sides were shooting across the border uh, quite regularly in Belgorod, especially with Ukraine shooting a lot more recently uh, than previously. And, and that's kind of the big difference here is these towns are being abandoned by Russian civilians and Russian soldiers. And, you know, what it could mean in the future is that it, it could create a situation where more areas on the Russian border are not safe for Russia to hold troops at or move troops through or used as rearming areas. And, and that's kind of a, that, that's, that's a big deal because a lot of these areas, if you were to go 20 kilometers within the Russian border, now the Russian troops trying to move uh, to a different front or rearm now have not really a 20 kilometer detour, but hundreds of kilometers of detours because of how the, the terrain is. So, you know, Ukraine shooting artillery across um, at military targets certainly creates a gigantic problem for the Russians who can't uh, operate safely within their borders anymore. Thanks, CJ. John, go ahead. Thank you, Charles. I asked, my, my question, my line of thought was, I asked, both related to Zaporizhia and zooming out a little bit more, what are, what are the challenges of making that transition from a reconnaissance and force effort or the, the, this probing effort to an actual, to, to either the secondary or primary line of effort for a significant scale offensive operation? Well, without a, <laughs> it's a, it's a great question because we uh, no one really ever wants to talk about F poles or, or forward passenger lines. It's one of the most uh, difficult military operations to do at scale. Well, one unit passes through another, and to the layperson, it may seem pretty simple, right? You, it, there's no real shooting involved. No, it's just hey, I, I'm moving through this unit to go forward. But the handover is very difficult to do, especially in large scale combat, because when you when let's just say this is the reconnaissance for uh, a penetration for the attack that's coming. All the the people that have been fighting the last 24, 48, 72 hours and the handover happens have to pass over. Hey, here's where the Russian targets are. Here's their pattern of life. You know, here's where we think they might be. And here's what we need when we go back. And, you know, whether it's being over gear, cross-loading supplies, et cetera. And at that point in time, it becomes essential that the higher level authorities and military commands, the brigade uh, command teams, the group army, corps, whatever echelon is, is you know, tightly in control of the situation because there may be a handover between two units where, you know, information is passed that, hey, there's a Russian tank battalion there we didn't think was there. And if that information doesn't get to the right people, it can pose a huge problem for that unit coming forward. So I think this is where the, the war games that have been done across Europe for Ukraine and some of those interactions where, you know, at, at Ramstein and other places, the sort of strategic level decisions are really going to be tested for this counteroffensive. And they've had, you know, over a year to work on this. And so I, I'd like to think it'll be done pretty well. And this is something we know for a fact the Russians don't do very well. They've gotten better in a lot of things. But the cross-unit coordination, especially between different unit types, whether it's Veda Veda regular Russian army or Wagner to the Russian National Guard, is just not super fluid between units. And of course, Ukraine and all military struggle a bit. But the, the transitions in a large-scale operation are always the most important point. So that'll be the thing. Can people talk, and are they talking to the right people? Yeah, I, I want to follow up on that real quick, uh, CJ, because um, you touched on the forward passage of lines. And I mean, I mean, when I look at it, I'm thinking, all right, well, uh, Kharkiv and, and Hersvan didn't really require this kind of maneuver coordination in, in the types of offensive that they were. But of course, uh, after... December, it was quite clear that, you know, we were going to be talking about some significant uh, breaching force, assault force, uh, follow on force type structure. Is this something that 
I mean, how how is that trained? Is is that something that has to be done in coordination with NATO militaries? Is that something that's already existing in Ukrainian doctrine? Just sort of how how is that learned? Yeah, I mean, it can be learned through a lot of training, of course. You know, when they do these sort of war game simulations, like they have been, the way it kind of works, just generally speaking, is the units are simulated. So you have a bunch of officers with very high level units. And they put them into a a computer program or a board game format, actually. And they'll have pieces move on the board and talk through every single sort of contingency that could come up. You know, sort of what if we run out of ammo here at this point in time because there's more resistance? Who do we get extra ammo from? We realize that they've, you know, the Russians have flooded a river and we have to move a battalion very far away to to get across a a river. You know, who are we going to get fuel from? And these are the things that uh, Ukraine has been working on time and time again. When we look at the Russian side, they do do this to some degree. But it's interesting that in the case of Kherson, Kharkiv, and even Kiev, you know, three retreats that Russia executed with varying levels of success, the only sort of contingency they were planning on in wargaming, and and this is coming from Colonel Spencer directly, is the idea that they were focused, (laughs) they did war games for failure. So they kind of wargamed through, hey, if we don't make it to Kiev and we end up losing, you know, how are we going to get out of here with most of our stuff intact? Same with Kharkiv to some degree and, and Harrison more so. So while Russia is doing a decent job at planning for failure, uh, Ukraine, you know, is planning for everything. And that's really the key thing here because sort of this, the counteroffensive to a large degree has already been won or lost. It, it's going to be a matter now of, you know, it's won or lost in the planning is what I really mean. Right. Now it's just down to execution. Language, go ahead. Right. So sort of rewinding back a couple of minutes, talking about this, you know, well, let's just call it what it is, offensive operations inside the territory of Russia, regardless of who's the boots on the ground. If from the guys I've talked to here, despite what the soldiers are saying, like, oh, it'd be great, you know, I don't think I'm going to surprise anyone or leak anybody's special plans by saying that the Ukrainian military does not currently uh, have the desire to go and take, you know, the city of Belgorod. They do not have the desire to, you know, draw up huge amounts of forces. So what's the purpose? Is the purpose for a political point? Could be. Is the purpose to fix Russian forces closer to the border to draw them away from other places? Wink, wink, nudge, nudge, potentially. Is the purpose to do any number of things? Is the purpose to send less than uh, savory units to participate somewhere else? Eh, some people argue that. I don't know if I'm so sure. But it is known and it is evident on Russian Telegram channels, on Russian social media, that this is occupying all of their time. The same way that the previous operation occurred coincidentally with the fall of Bakhmut is and draw a huge amount of Russian attention. This is occurring at a secondary time for an extended duration, right? But this isn't a raid. This isn't a defined military target. It's we're here and we're doing things to you. Now, if it's if that's the whole objective, which it appears to be, we have to decide what is this objective in support of? What can Ukraine benefit from by virtue of having a fighting force existing inside of Russia, causing a redeployment of Russian forces and all the military political resources that are being drawn there because frankly in a you know punch for punch fight ukraine does not have the uh at least not to my knowledge hopefully i'm wrong the munitions or manpower 
to throw itself into such a large scale operation in an incredibly challenging area for no gain. They've, they just don't have them right now, if that makes sense. Thanks, Language. And, and let's turn this to Artois or, or to Andrew. Today, we've seen two things. We've seen large attacks in the south along the border of the Donetsk and Zaporizhia Oblast uh, from the Ukrainian armed forces who have made considerable gains, I would say, judging over the past several months, I would call it considerable. Of course, in the size of Ukraine, it's still minimal, but we, we shall see. And of course, we've also seen a, a new incursion into Russia. Maybe just Andrew or to Artois, how is, you know, the, the Russian telegram mill blogger sphere reacting to these two events? Are they, are they really focused on, on the incursions into Russia? Maybe, Andrew, I'll start with you. They, they seem more concerned about Russia. The messaging about Zaporizhia, the, the attack in the south today, um, was kind of weird. In the morning, they were very obviously concerned about what was going on and you could sense a degree of panic as the day went on they became more and more confident they kept posting that same video of uh, ukraine losing those vehicles you know a couple hundred thousand times just like wanting everybody to see it and now they're saying that the entire attack failed and everybody went home and there's nothing to talk about so that, that's kind of suspicious, especially after earlier in the day, they, they themselves declared that Ukraine captured two towns. So that, that whole messaging is, is kind of weird. But in Russia, they seem to be much more angry about what is going on, especially in the uh, Shevikino. They, they are very upset about that. <laughs> and and there, there's also more aggressive, I would say, hate coming from the, the Russian uh, side of the attack, where they are like uh, actively pursuing anyone talking about it, even tangentially, and, and having their little hate trolls, uh, you know, mass spam them with messages. So they seem very upset about the, the Russian side. Or Artois, anything to add um, that you've picked up on any of the news today? Yeah, yeah, kind of similar. It depends what kind of um, telegram circles you're... you're, you're, you're... Sp uh, spanning both of the time and there's there's uh there's the kind of larger domestic russian audience focused channels and, and as as andrew said it's it's very much you know as usual evidence under control no panic they they didn't mention this up thing at all and of course everything is fine in belgrade you know they've they've wiped out rdk forces for the 17th time and, and order has been restored etc on the more milldogger side ever since i i saw the so the similar report that Andrew was talking about, there was some specific villages named that were already discussed. Uh, it's it's become some of the let's say more predictable channels uh, are, are now you know going with uh, all you know all Ukrainians were killed. Um, it's all fine. We won the battle. No ground was lost. The, the original channels that actually made the reports haven't given any updates at all, which is telling um, for me at least. And on the Belgorod side, it's it's a clan show really. Lots of kind of. Uh, political infighting and uh, the MOD is to blame and no, it's the governor's to blame. Um, uh, you know, all, all this kind of thing. There's, it, it, It's quite funny, they don't actually seem to know how to deal with group we kind of touched on there. These are Russian citizens, born and raised in Russia. They claim they're fighting for Russia. I presume they have some kind of support from Ukraine, obviously, but none of the larger Russian media outlets or telegram channels seem to actually want to even recognize that fact. Um, 
you know, they're still referred to as Ukrainian or Polish saboteurs and that kind of thing, um, which is very interesting. And it's going to feed into that uh, kind of the uh, some additional political instability in Russia and especially in those border regions. I feel like I saw, I was reading through some of the local Belgrade channels and yeah, people are, are very angry with the, the governor currently. Just before I turn over to Exit 266, is it true that Russia has ordered the evacuation of, of towns in the Belgorod Oblast, or is that just a rumor? No, no, that's that's 100%. Uh, Shevkino and some of the other villages adjacent to it, they've, yeah, they've, they've given a full, full evacuation order. There were some rumors earlier about similar orders for towns further north, but I haven't seen any of that sort of confirmed in any official communications or anything. Thanks a lot. Let's go to Exit 266. Hi, Exit. Hello. We've seen some attacks on the ports in Russian-occupied Ukraine in the last week. Specifically, there was the attack on the warehouse in Berdyansk a couple days ago. Obviously, it's likely to change things with logistics. And I'm wondering uh, what we should be watching for to see how that's affecting Russian logistics. Yeah, thanks, Exit. Actually, I want to I wanted to turn this question to CJ and, and frame it a little bit in that since Storm Shadow has been released and has had strikes, we've seen strikes in Luhansk, we've seen strikes in Bariansk and, and other areas towards the south of the Sea of Azov. In in terms of the the lethal fires with these long range fires, how are these targets planned? And is there anything that we could look at to say, okay, this is this is a signal versus this is noise? I mean, the biggest advantage of the storm shadow isn't their range necessarily. It's, of course, they're a much more maneuverable missile and much more accurate than anything else that Ukraine has, as far as I'm aware. And that's obviously a pro and a con with a cruise missile, because cruise missiles typically are slower than ballistic missiles or other types. But with the extended range, they can, they can basically uh, literally fly circles around Russian air defenses uh, just outside of range to get Targets that, you know, might only be 20 or 30 kilometers further than what a HIMARS can hit, but something that is much better protected with much better air defenses. Of course, we have to note here that Russia has gotten slightly better over time at intercepting uh, missiles from HIMARS and other things, whether it be uh, affecting them through some jamming or other measures. So they have not completely lost their edge, but it's not, the, you know, the same as it was a year ago. But to a large degree, this is another shock to the R- Russian logistics system because now, they have to think, you know, they were already decentralizing a lot of logistics hubs. They were, you know, and doing it more safely or so they thought outside of HIMARS range. But now it's, you know, with a 300 kilometer state of range, you know, what do they do? Do they try and put things back in Russia? Well, as we saw with harms being used, and those are the anti-radar, anti-air defense missiles being used uh, in Russia proper, you know, who's to say Ukraine wouldn't, you know, launch these storm shadows in, into Russia itself? And of course, this is sort of where uh, it leaves my area of expertise. That's more of a political question than a military one. But I think overall, what it deprives Russia of is the consistency they need to plan logistics in a way uh, for a massive defense. Because if you're not really certain, you know, which ammo depots are going to be, you know, very safe versus possibly safe, then it becomes very difficult to, you know, predictably push supplies to the front. And as we've seen with the miles-long Russian convoys certain Russian elements being left without ammo or fuel, not necessarily due to lack of supplies, but just due to lack of planning, the storm shadows will make that problem for them much, much worse. Thanks, CJ. I'm going to follow up on that. And I'm sorry if this is sort of a 
difficult question or even a dumb question, but you know, we see these long range strikes either through High Mars or through Storm Shadow all across the front lines over the last several weeks. When we look at it, how could we determine whether that's a shaping operation designed to uh, deceive or interdict versus what is actually in support of the main effort? Like, how are those decisions made in these kind of target decision making processes? Well, um, yeah, this is uh, there's whole year long courses that devoted to this topic. So I'll try and think of a way to keep it brief. But basically, you know, at least with fires, there's 30 some odd uh, tactical tasks as per the, the new doctrine, at least in the U.S. Army. And all that's to say, you know, in the past, these sort of things were used primarily to, you know, suppress, to, to keep an enemy's head down. And that goes for people or gear, you know, to neutralize, to take it out of the fight for, you know, a certain amount of time until it's repaired or destroyed, obviously, which I think is pretty clear cut. But, you know, the idea of using fires for deception, for interdicting, you know, there's there's so many means that you can do. So really, if we uh, are able to figure out what Ukraine is doing, then certainly Russia is as well. I think the main thing to keep in mind is, you know, they don't have an unlimited supply of these and these things are somewhat dangerous to launch uh, due to the fact that they, you know, they have to be air launched. So you have to consider how is Ukraine with its own air defenses protecting its aircraft you know, keeping Russian fighters at bay. And again, important to note here that Russian fighters, you know, are make up almost half of the Ukrainian air losses, right? They're not, Ukrainians aren't just getting shot down by ground air defense, they're getting shot down out of the sky. And that's why something like an F-16 would go a long way to creating pockets of local air superiority. And, you know, that's also fires, so I'll give a pitch. It also would reduce the strain on ground logistics, right? Because it's, it's one thing for Ukraine to plan, you know, an attack with 100,000 people. I mean, it's a gigantic endeavor. The U.S. hasn't done it for, you know, over 20 years. But for Ukraine to do it and only rely on ground power, so artillery and surface-to-surface missiles, it, it's a massive undertaking. But it becomes somewhat easier, at least from the combined arms piece and the infantry piece, fighting through that trench if a lot of those supplies are taken, you know, out of the map by ground fires. And that's why that's so important, not just for control of the skies, but also for, for the ground fights ahead. Thanks a lot, CJ. I'll follow up on the on the, the scale of this ground uh, force attack uh, in a moment. But I want to go to John first and then language. John, go ahead. Thank you. We were talking about Russian Telegram and their, their thoughts on various things. CJ, you mentioned earlier non-lethal fires, specifically in, the, in this case, in kind of the cyber and the information space. Generally, what is the approach to non-lethal fires being able to influence events on the battlefield in real time? And I'm, I'm particularly thinking in, in regard to those reports that Russian personnel in fairly close proximity to the front line rely on their own telegram channels for information to a, to a surprising extent. Yeah, and that's sort of the, the crazy thing there. And the idea be behind the digitization of military communications, which happened really throughout the 90s and, and in the early 2000s, there was this sort of idea that basically if we can make everything digital, that everyone can have all the information they need at a moment's notice. But what ended up happening to a large scale is two sort of negative things. The first being anything that's sent digitally is vulnerable in a way that someone physically running a message or even some radios are just not as vulnerable. And the second thing too is almost information overload. And we saw that on Russian Telegram when they're, for example, asking for airstrikes and everyone's making fun of them on Twitter for asking for airstrikes. And the thing is, you know, that information is lost in the, just the sheer amount of data going on Telegram and other messaging services to know 
hey, is this a real request? Is this a fake request? You know, it's one of those things where sometimes in militaries, they bite off more than they can chew and, and over communicate. And that's why command and control is so important, ensuring that the right people are getting the right messages at the right time. And, and in terms of integrating them, you know, that's the biggest thing with deception. It comes in so many forms. Deception could be, you know, Ukraine shooting artillery missions for three days at a certain village and get the Russians to think that's where they're going. And, you know, that's the benefit here is if Russia doesn't respond and doesn't move troops to that artillery incursion, then Ukraine can just follow up on the ground. So you kind of have to check out every lead in a way. And that's where the UAVs become so important, because a lot of times UAVs, you can confirm or deny data that'll impact a military decision uh, simply if you can actually see what's going on with practically your own eyes. And that's something that you can't get from, you know, just people reporting things. Interesting, especially this idea of deception through over-information. That's an interesting topic. Let's go to uh, language. Thanks. There's a, a comment and then a question. The, the question first, because it's something that happened before. When we were talking about the fires that are currently happening up in the incursion into Russia, there was some report, some of the guys that I was working with today were saying, oh, the, the Russians are bombing their own villages. You know, Now they get to see what it's like. And there was a bunch of like the same joke being passed around that, uh, you know, Russia will destroy itself. We just have to send two guys there for them to shoot at. A, was that ever confirmed? Are they actually dropping large quantities or is that still murky? The specific allegation was thermite. So that, that's a question. Then I have a comment on sort of the um, non-lethal fire aspect of things. Great. Go ahead, CJ, if you have some. Yeah. So, what I, you know, obviously I did see it. And I, I would believe it's, confirmed that Russia is launching the the fabs with some some guidance packages and what it looks like is they're trying to take out sort of large buildings that Ukraine could use as sort of staging areas or hiding spots whatever but in terms of who's shooting the incendiary munitions I think that's a little bit cl less clear and less Andrew knows definitively but it's a very interesting choice and I think the reason let's say it's Russia doing it well they're trying to prevent drones from observing easily they're trying to prevent Ukraine from correcting artillery fire and they're just trying, generally trying to flush out the area uh, of Ukrainians from being able to operate, whether it's in the woods or, or the villages there. If it's Ukraine doing it, you know, there's a lot of benefits there as well for a lot of the same reasons, you know, causing mass confusion, uh, maybe even forcing uh, civilians to leave uh, so they don't get caught in the crossfire of more lethal high explosive rounds. This is a tactic sometimes used sort of to prep the battlefield, but there's probably some benefits for each side, and, and there's also a case where both sides are doing it, but I'm not sure if Andrew's heard more about who exactly is shelling what there, and I, I don't think anyone quite knows for certain right now. Andrew, anything to add? It's really hard to tell who's shooting the incendiaries. I saw a video that I'm not 100% sure on where it was filmed, but I do think it was filmed north looking south, and it looked like the shell may have come from the south. But I'm not entirely sure because, you know, it's at, at night. All you see is, you know, incendiary rounds. It's, it's hard to tell what direction you're looking. So um, I, it's, I, I, I don't really know. Okay, thanks. Language, let's go back to your non-lethal fires topic. And just one caveat on this. CJ, I have to laugh when, when you said that a, a cyber attack was non-lethal fires. Question from my side, has artillery branch adopted, have they co-opted everything that is not tube artillery into their own branch? Real briefly, it's confusing because field artillery, at least in the U.S., and I don't know exactly how it is for Ukraine, but it's considered a, a fire, so... 
It's within the pur- purview of fires officers, but it's not a field artillery task. So there's a separate branch. So basically, it's a little bit ownership of both. Um, and I think Ukraine really is the testing ground for this right now, as they have dedicated, you know, cyber and electronic warfare officers across the board, uh, even in non-cyber electronic warfare units. And Russia does this as well because they they sort of understand on both sides the importance of the entire electromagnetic spectrum in a way that hopefully we will soon too, uh, because a lot of the time, at least in NATO militaries, that sort of stuff is handled obviously just as well, but it's handled by much higher levels of control, operational or strategic. It's not necessarily something that a tactical ground commander, company, battalion, brigade uh, really worries about because they sort of assume it's been handled by the massive amount of assets that exist for, for NATO. But the difference here is there's so many different types of EW and cyber going on and, you know, all the way down to, as people pointed out, <laughs> fire missions going out on Telegram that it really kind of shows us that maybe we need to consider this at, at a tactical level like we're not right now. Okay, interesting. And that, and that makes a lot of sense. Okay, language, uh, you had a question about or, or a comment about lethal, non-lethal fires. Go ahead. So more sort of the uh, motivation behind them and the level to which that's applied. Motivation is the wrong word. It's been a long day. So over the last couple of days, the, um, the units that we've been training with, they've been also conducting tactical trainings pretty much, or in some cases, literally, you know, just, you know, a, you know 10, 15 meters away, 100 meters away. Something I found interesting because the group we're currently with is a mechanized unit is how they integrate vehicles in ways that, frankly, are pretty inventive, especially even when those vehicles have no real vested interest in supporting the offensive without diving too much into the nitty gritty because A, I'm not the right person to talk about it, and B, we start to dive into OPSEC stuff. The... It surprised me the first time because I, I pointed at something and I asked the guy I was working with, I said, hey, that doesn't seem to make sense. You know, and he goes, oh, well, it's because reason X, Y, Z. And I went, oh, like even at a really a um, a company level maneuver, even a platoon level maneuver, really, some of these things, we're seeing that level of, okay, we can divert their attention with a resource that may or may not be functional or even desirable to use you know this specific vehicle the specific conditions it might not be great but because we can draw attention here or because we can create a threat here even if this vehicle isn't necessarily capable of doing what people think it is it's enough for us to go do this other thing and that brings us back to the whole topic on information warfare shaping operations you know as far as what we're seeing arguably now in certain areas of Russia, as well as others, we're seeing that in cyber communications. Anytime Ukraine launches an assault, if you look at Russian telegram channels or supposedly pro-Russian telegram channels, a, a bunch of guys immediately kind of out themselves if you're looking. And they go, oh my God, the Ukrainians have blitzed 30 you know, kilometers into our lines. They've already seized the nuclear weapons. They're targeting them at Moscow right now. There's a lot of that. And that's something that is really integral to what I've witnessed in the Ukrainian military from the bottom up. And I think that's a good thing because it's well, now we start to get envisionings of an overall military culture and how that's applied, which means if it's being applied from the ground up, there's a little bit more mastery of it than an ad hoc approach, if that makes sense. Just my unsolicited two or three cents. 
Thanks, Language. Interesting. And, and maybe to turn that into a question for you, CJ, what I'll do is I'll ask this question and then after this we'll, we'll sort of sum up what has happened over the last 12 to 24 hours and then we'll talk a little bit more about artillery. Um, but I want to ask you a question based on what uh, Language mentioned as a, a serving military officer. How is your training, your guidance, your use of social media and these kinds of networks, these kinds of channels, how is that changing based on what you're seeing in the war in Ukraine? Yeah, I think, you know, it's it's changing quite rapidly. But there's other great examples, uh, even in Iraq and the Philippines, that, that if you want to read more, check out Colonel Spencer or Major Duro's work on it. They've, they've really kind of highlighted how this is done. And the first step that you have to understand is that you cannot control the information face like you once could really prior to social media, because even in the early Internet days uh, where everything was broadcast on, on TV, you still had a large amount of control in terms of what was getting out, what was coming in. Uh, but now it, it's sort of out the window. So what everyone sort of has to be comfortable with is competing in the information space. So if, for example, you know, military says, hey, we're not going to post anything. Uh, we're not going to post any troops training. We're not going to post any victories or losses. We're going to keep completely silent. Realize that comes at a, a pretty large cost, and that cost is not competing in the information space. It's one of the reasons why I think people get very critical of Ukraine or other people for promoting, you know, where units are and all these other things, you know, CCTV footage of, of air defense missiles, things like that. And you have to understand there is a very large benefit from, you know, Ukraine saying, hey, we're still here and we're fighting, you know, and even if that comes at some sort of risk, I, I personally think it's outweighed. So that's kind of the one of the main things everyone's sort of learning in this, at going down to units, having their own social media. I mean, I follow a bunch of Ukraine units on Twitter and, and Facebook, and it's interesting how they're all so different. And, um, you know, and that's really the tough part, I think, moving forward is understanding, you know, how much of this messaging should be centralized, because if it's too centralized and it comes off as, uh, you know, government line, people might say propaganda, but if it's too all over the place and too sort of uh, real or too sort of candid, maybe, then there's also a cost there as people get riled up and get emotional for what's an extremely, arguably the most emotional thing someone can go through, you know, an existential war. So I think that's what most people are, are hopefully taking away from this is the idea. You have to put something out there. You have to compete because if you don't, your adversary will compete all the time. And, and all these guys can attest to how much information Russia is putting out first on Telegram and then, of course, making its way to Twitter. And it doesn't matter if it's real or not. Just by saying something, they're, they're having a, a vote uh, in terms of the information operations that are going on. So the most important thing is to, to have more and have it be more consistent as well. Because if you are saying a bunch of things you're not doing, that will only last so long before the world figures it out. Yeah, that's that's very interesting. And, and of course, we're seeing this play out in real time today with the attack in, in the south and then, of course, the incursion in the north. So just to summarize, um, so now we're at about, um, I don't know, the 40-minute mark. Um, great to have you here, CJ. Uh, we have a lot more questions for you, but maybe just to summarize what's happened over the last 12 or 24 hours, and please correct me if I'm wrong, Andrew, CJ, anyone, Archwar, but there has been an attack by the Ukrainian armed forces approximately 35 kilometers uh, west of Volodar towards the south into the Zaporizhia and Donetsk Oblast. We are estimating about a brigade size at this time, but we don't have confirmation on that. They have made 
gains. So far, the the single-digit kilometer gains across the double-digit kilometer width gains. But of course, all of this is coming in. And then, of course, we have renewed incursions into Russia, Belgorod Oblast in the north, which is a major topic of discussion on Russian telegram. We've got several more questions for you, CJ. I see Rosalie is here. Hi, Rosalie. Did you have a question you wanted to bring up? Yeah, thanks, Charles. You guys have a really great panel right now. Uh, I just wanted to say that I'm like in awe. My questions maybe for CJ, maybe for Artoire too a bit because he sees it. But I'm curious if the way in which information plays a role in the Ukrainian military and what they're doing particularly right now, do you see an application for this? Like, do you see other countries within NATO adapting and learning from Ukraine? Uh, the reason I ask is there's a couple different fields that I think are learning a lot from their communication strategy right now. And I am just curious about what you see there. Well, you know, my background, at least from college, was on uh, strategic communication, specifically on how ISIS used uh, social media. And the thing about, you know, operating against decentralized networks and sort of insurgencies like NATO had done, despite, you know, the whole purpose of NATO being uh, the defense of Europe and North America, it was mostly concerned with very small conflicts in terms of scale and, and a lot of insurgencies. So it was difficult really to see how well they could or would do in a situation until now. And I think the main thing I would want to highlight is how NATO has done a pretty good job overall as a sort of gigantic strategic entity, uh, whether it's if, if you look through their social media, they're constantly talking about Ukraine. And, and now, of course, everyone here is well aware Ukraine is not in NATO and probably won't be for, for quite some time. But it's something that they know people online are talking about. They know that the decision to send uh, by each country, um, with a few exceptions, military aid is extremely popular. So they're able to sort of capitalize and bridge the support everyone has, or a lot of people have for Ukraine, to support towards NATO itself. And that's kind of the very, you know, the, as you would know, because you're, you're the real expert here, this kind of balancing act between connecting yourself uh, on information operations to something that's positive, something you're actually doing, and doing it consistently. And NATO as a whole has done a very good job. I know people here, of course, have uh, been very critical of their own governments not giving necessarily enough aid or the right aid. And that's definitely something to consider. But at the same time, sort of that overarching support in a consistent way has enabled uh, more countries to give more. And that really is the key thing here, because, you know, Ukraine, in order to beat Russia, needs a lot of stuff from a lot of different countries and sort of one or two countries can't do it on their own. And so I think that's the most interesting takeaway here is how does sort of the free world or at least NATO in this specific case come together. And it's easier than fighting ISIS because Russia is a state. Yes, they're adversarial to a lot of countries on Earth. But if you are working with a government and you have to do it in a centralized way, then you can be beaten by another centralized force uh, with the correct strategy. Thank you, CJ. Any follow up, Rosalie, before I go to John? No, thank you. That was fantastic. Thanks, CJ. Great. John, go ahead. Thank you. Uh, CJ, in terms of how the, the U.S. Armed Forces, I guess the U.S. Army specifically, have approached this war in terms of generating lessons learned for our own benefit and that of our allies, without necessarily reference to you know a single specific lesson or class of lessons 
do you feel that the approach that is you know being broadly taken to, to generating that information or, or those lessons has been effective thus far? Yeah, I think it just takes a lot of time. Like, as I've told people in previous spaces and other circumstances, like the U.S. Army and specifically the field artillery, but, you know, the conventional army took pretty much every lesson they could from the initial invasion of, of Ukraine by Russia in 2014 and 15, applied it to how they would want to fight degraded, how they'd want to fight separated, how they'd want to use more drones. It just took about four or five years to fully spread it across the force. So, I'm optimistic that the same will be done for especially, I mean, there's so many changes even in the last year, but with, you know, an organization that is almost a million people and then also a million plus civilians, it will take uh, a decent amount of time, time that the U.S. has, but Ukraine doesn't. And that's the really incredible thing is how much Ukraine has been able to innovate, change tactics, change how they operate, change their strategy under fire uh, in such a short amount of time. And I think if anything should be focused on, it's how... Not what Ukraine changed, but how they're able to change. Because I know this Ukrainian officer is still critical of the Soviet class of officers. And people brought up at an earlier time that they deem as, um, you know, kind of an obstacle to, to winning. But the reality is there's enough of the sort of forward thinking pe people that have trained with NATO, like, like I did in uh, Germany back in 2018, 2019. I mean, these people, they just seem like a member of NATO in terms of how they thought, how they operated. There was no sort of reservations uh, about fighting Russia in, in a kind of a different way. So if anything's taken away, I really hope we look at how they were able to change so quickly. Um, thanks a lot, CJ. And, and I want to dive into, you know, we have about a half an hour left or so, but I want to dive into the artillery branch specifically and, and the, the fire's warfighting function. We haven't been able to talk to you for a while. You've been on maneuvers and so on, but I know that you've been following the conflict very closely. What have you seen, you know, leading up to this date over the last several weeks in terms of counter battery, munitions amounts, um, target selection? What has stood out for you leading up to today? So the biggest change in the last six months that I've seen is Russia is using much less ammo than they did six months ago by a large factor. I, I, I'd be lying if I could tell you it was an exact number, but we know last summer it was something on the order of about 60,000 rounds a day across the front. Um, and now it's somewhere about 20,000 rounds a day at, at the most. And I, if it's updated since then, I would love to hear more about it. But what on the Ukrainian side, it ne hasn't necessarily increased that much. It's somewhere sitting between three and 7,000. So, you know, they're still shooting at, at a deficit of about three to one at, optimistically. But what does that all mean? Well, we've seen a couple new tactics come up. We've seen Russia use more and more uh, Lancet and other loitering munitions, FPV drones to attack artillery positions. We're seeing different ways to engage artillery on both sides. And it's it's interesting to me because I, I have to wonder, what are these rounds being safe for? Are they, uh, you know, for the Russians' case, are they being saved for the defense? The Ukraine's case, are they being saved for the offense? You know, it's a little bit less clear as the artillery is used less, but more um, acutely, I guess, would be the better way. Because obviously, there's still a lot of artillery, but it, it seems to be more concentrated as both sides figure out, uh, you know, how to, how to operate with less. Uh, specifically in the Russian case, if you listen to uh, Dr. Watling's podcast uh, at uh, the Modern War Institute, he talks about this in great, great detail. But to summarize, you know, Russia has now sort of focused in on counter battery and sort of target selection. And by that, I mean, they're not just necessarily shooting at everything that comes up. 
as a target. You know, they're being more deliberate. Um, and so they're applying a bit more analysis. So when they do shoot, it's a little bit better, which is not good news for the Ukrainians. But on the, the plus side for the Ukrainians, they have, you know, over the past six months picked up anywhere between 200 and 400 self-propelled guns. So they have a lot more sort of depth in their usage. Hopefully they've gotten more rounds. It's almost an impossible feat to try and figure out how much ammo is left on both sides, despite my, my best efforts to do so. But what, what does it all mean? It, it all means that when sort of this next phase uh, of the war kicks off, which it seems like it might have started today, it's the artillery is going to be turned up to 10. I mean, sort of no one's going to necessarily hold back. And that's really where it'll be crucial to see who has planned better, who has planned resupplies better, who has planned contingencies better, and who has planned targets better. You know, how, you know, for, for an example, you know, one of the things about hitting a trench is you have to fire a, a ton of artillery rounds just to clear out a trench. If, you know, you're just shooting it unguided, hundreds, if not thousands of rounds just to clear a 50 to 100 meter patch a trench completely. But if you're willing to trust your soldiers and trust the observers, you need much less because what you're really doing then is you have, you know, a drone, the artillery piece, and an infantry squad. And with five or six rounds, you can, you know, take out the enemy in that trench and move forward. But that requires a level of trust, which I think Ukrainians have uh, in a large amount and maybe Russia, Russia has a, a little bit less amount. So what it'll come down to is sort of how far those authorities have been put down when it really counts, because that will make all the difference. There's BMPs, there's tanks, a lot of armored vehicles on each side. But if you're trusting Ukrainians to use four or five rounds at a time and, and be deliberate with it, then it can make a huge difference. Yeah, thanks a lot, CJ. Um, I've got to follow up, but go ahead, uh, John. Uh, thank you. Just in, in CJ, in terms of volume of fire, one of the assets that has been particularly discussed in terms of generating greater efficacy on a per round basis and reducing barrelware and various other sustainment considerations are um, BPICM rounds dual purpose improved cluster munition rounds. We know that Ukraine has received some quantity of those from some as of yet unknown providers in the form of both uh, DPICM shells for 120, uh, 120 millimeter mortars as well as more recently, uh, 155 millimeter DPICM shells. In terms of prioritizing assets, well, how does one approach the problem of prioritizing the use of such assets that are presumably likely in you know somewhat limited supply? Um, in terms of just you know uh, fire from a fire standpoint, I guess. Yeah, so can't talk about cluster munitions without a, a pretty big disclaimer, which is that you know, they're controversial. Um, they are designed primarily for um, you know armored targets because they are a little bit more indiscriminate. They are, they have built-in you know sort of shape charges, and they cover a lot more area. So these are the type of things that were designed during the Cold War to take out massive formations of armored vehicles. So you look at the the, the war in Ukraine, and it seems like this would be a, a substance. A munition that would be benefit Ukraine greatly, but there's been a lot of hesitancy because it is controversial. So, how these would be prioritized would be for their intended purpose, right? Armor, and, th and that's the thing. It's kind of hard without showing <laughs> a live demonstration. But if you're not uh, adjusting any artillery, for example, it's going to take almost you know a hundred rounds of one five five to destroy two tanks. Whereas with DPICM, dual purpose improved cluster munitions, uh, the, the common round at NATO, 
it only takes half of that, if not much, much less than if you're adjusting even less. So you can have almost, you know, five to 10 times uh, bang for your buck. And that that goes not just to uh, taking out targets quickly, but also, and I would argue even more importantly, less to wear on the barrels. The less you're shooting from your artillery pieces, the longer they can be sustained and maintained and longer they can be in the fight without having to go back for repairs. So that's going to be a huge benefit here as Ukraine tries to bound forward um, and take new positions is that they're going to have all their guns with them. And so using cluster munitions is a way uh, in which that can happen more easily. Yeah, just to follow up on that point, CJ, because I, mean, I remember we were talking back in the fall even about barrel wear and uh, refit and uh, the lifetime of systems. But I, we haven't heard much about it over the last four months or so. Is the reliability just that much greater than we thought? Or is there a reliable system or is it just not being reported? I think, well, I could only speak to the performance of the American systems. I'm sure Andrew's got a lot of complaints from systems donated, but I, I would say on average, the systems that their cells in terms of their artillery pieces are lasting much longer than the militaries that sent them expected. That doesn't really speak to the rounds necessarily being used, but they're well made. And I think that's a, an important first step. And then the second thing is, you know, sort of since the fall, there's been, you know, there's more contractors in Ukraine, there's more entities set up to repair and refit barrels. And, and that doesn't go for just in Ukraine, but also Romania, Latvia, Poland, all these other places where these can be more easily repaired without having to go all the way back to Germany or the, or the UK. So there is a more substantial uh, network of infrastructure set up to not just repair artillery, but tanks and, and everything in between. So this is a vital thing. Obviously, it would be better if it was in Ukraine because it'd be closer. And so the turnaround time would be less. But that also comes at a risk as it, it can be targeted. So it's one of those things where this is where NATO's benefit really comes in because it's not an area that Russia's going to mess with anytime soon. So it ends up being a, a little bit longer to turn around these pieces. And now that they have many more from this time last year, they're able to do it without uh, affecting the, the front as much. Good. Thanks a lot, CJ. Talking about the munitions, maybe Andrew, you can add to this as well, because we were talking about the supply system. I mean, it's one thing to have the guns, it's one thing to have the rounds, but of course you need to have the rounds the right type and the right quantity in the place where you need them. Of course, this front line is huge, it's very, very long. So the ability not only to have the initiative, but also to have the, the flexible supply system to be able to react to any kind of attacks is critical. CJ... Coming back from, you know, 15 months ago, you know, pre-invasion, talking about a push system of, of Russian logistics, very, very rail-based. Then we fast forward to today. The supply infrastructure seems to be working as much as it can, but obviously, of course, is limited because of Ukrainian uh, indirect fires, interdiction, uh, limitations of, of trucks and trains and so on. What is your assessment on both sides in terms of Ukrainians and, and Russian forces to actually get the right rounds, the right fuses, the right thing to the right place at the right time? I think a lot of it comes down to trust. And so, you know, really the issue there with trust is I think the Ukrainians trust each other slightly more at least than the Russians do. So for example, Russia probably has access to more ammunition. I think this is pretty obvious, but what they don't necessarily have is a structure where they can reliably predict what they'll get. And this system isn't necessarily great for the Ukrainians, but I'd argue it's better. So 
when we hear about people suffering a, a shell shortage or whatnot, it's it's almost two different issues. The first issue is, you know, which side is getting more ammo, which probably is the Russians for now. And, and the second thing is, who is more reliably getting ammo when they think they will? And I would give that to the Ukrainians. And that's a huge difference because without having a consistency or the ability to plan, you're completely subject to the whims of, of what you get at the time. Now, this affects the Russians slightly less because of how their planning structure is. They plan based on the resources they have um, in order to do you know, fire support attacks first and then follow up with infantry. This bodes well when they have a lot of artillery and a lot of ammo. It bodes very poorly um, and almost suicidally when they don't. Whereas the Ukrainian model, which is getting better and more like NATO, is much more so, you know, they plan based on what they have on hand, which is a little bit more reliable. I don't know, Andrew, if you disagree or not, but I think the reliability that Ukraine has is preferable than to the sort of higher quantities Russia might get. Yeah, I have a... A story. Uh, it, it came from a, a leaked intercept of a, a Russian. I think it was a battery commander or a, a battalion commander, and he said that he was he was upset because he had been promised uh, three hundred rounds per day. I think for his um, his battalion, and he had only received fifty. And the uh, the 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 supply people basically said, "Well, you just got to live with it." And this is the thing in large scale combat and especially in this war, you, you the ability to live with it when, you know, if you're getting hit by drones, hitting by other things, is, is you don't have necessarily a long time to live in, in that specific case. I mean, the, this kind of war takes up massive amounts of, of resources, specifically steel, TNT. It's, it's a problem that can really only be survived by a global interconnected network of economies, which is why, although it's been slow to increase, it will benefit Ukraine in the long run because they have access to, to all of these things that Russia doesn't necessarily do. So this is one of the things that is always so crazy to me is that the longer this war goes on, the better supplied Ukraine will be with all different types of ammo and the worse Russia will be. But maybe they're they're hoping on for something. I'm not quite sure what it is. Thanks, DJ. Ellen, go ahead. Yeah, I, I wanted to ask a little bit about communication and command and control and how important it is uh, to react with fire when you're in a defending position and to have pre-planned firing positions. And I've observed, and also together with Charles, we discussed this, that the, that the it seems like the, the Russians, they might have pre-planned firing coordinates, but th it doesn't seem like they react very fast. And when they do, it is too late. Uh, and this is not something... It, we've seen just in one incident, it, it kind of repeats itself. Have you observed that this has deteriorated during the war and during the full-scale invasion that basically they don't have competent personnel? Is it lack of radio communication systems working or not being applied correctly? Because this is, uh, at least for me, this it poses a very bit large advantage to the to the Ukrainians as it looks like for me right now. So I think with all things, some of the Russians' uh, tactics have improved and some have deteriorated over time. So, you know, for one example, there was a, a couple cases I saw last summer when they were firing so incredibly much that at least with uh, within the DNR and LNR, I, I can't remember if that was before or after they got absorbed officially by the Russian military organization, 
but they were firing uh, from D-20s and D-30s, so very old Soviet artillery pieces, uh, and they were firing quotas. So basically, they had a general direction, maybe even a grid, but there it wasn't tied to an observer or any sort of drone in the air. They were just firing for the sake of firing, and they could definitely do that when Ukraine was so heavily outgunned, uh, you know, 20 to 1, if not worse, in terms of amount of rounds being fired. And, and that's something I don't necessarily think they're doing as much anymore, especially as ammo is harder to come by. So that's a small improvement. Another improvement is um, the counter-battery response time, as Dr. Wadling uh, noted from his studies, you know, meeting with the Ukrainian general staff, the average response time uh, for an artillery mission has come from about 20 minutes, which is incredibly slow, to about two minutes, two to five minutes, which is about the normal planning factor. So in some ways, Russia's finally back to their doctrinal rate in terms of how fast they can respond. But one thing that's still missing and is, uh, I think, a gap Ukraine hopefully will exploit is sort of this task organization, right? So for in order for Russia to successfully shoot at Ukrainian artillery pieces when they fire, they have to set guns aside uh, just for that mission because if they don't, they'll be too incredibly slow to respond. And it's one of those things where Russians don't seem to necessarily trust that the artillery pieces to their left and right are going to protect them as much, so they're less hesitant to, to basically give up their guns for something that's pretty far away and they don't feel like it's going to affect them. And it becomes a situation where, you know, are they actually trusting their people as much as possible? And also noted, too, was, you know, a lot of the, um, you know, within the Russian military, there's a bunch of hierarchies, obviously, within the sort of more conventional size. Zede uh, Bay had uh, a lot more precedence in terms of determining the doctrine and tactics of the Russian Russian military. However, with so many of their leaders wounded or killed, that sort of fell away. And secondly, you know, the Russian artillery force was elevated to a much higher level in their military than, you know, the American military or any other force. And a similar thing happened where they've lost so many people and then they sent their trainers in. And that's the second thing. So they sent the people that were supposed to be instructing Russian artillery students. Uh, they sent those people to lead and, and a similar thing happened. So what you have is a situation where all of these uh, Russian units are not very well trained, but some of them are learning faster than others. So they're adapting differently across the whole front. And that is a good thing for Ukraine to exploit because it means that there's going to be certain units that are not as good. There are going to be certain lessons that aren't going to be passed on and certain people they can prioritize. So, you know, the best of the Russian people, uh, Russian soldiers are at the front and they're responding very differently, which some people might say might be an advantage because it's unpredictable. But I'd argue since it's not consistent, it's going to be a huge gap Ukraine can exploit. Thanks a lot, CJ. I, I understand language that um, you will lose power shortly. So please go ahead. So yeah, they turn off the generator in about 15 minutes and whether it goes to Wi-Fi. So real quick, as far as response to fire, something that's important to note and which took me by surprise is really the pervasive use of drones. Like we know intellectually that they're used, but it's another thing to recognize it. We, um, we were in the South Donbass a couple of days ago in an area that's and you can close to artillery fire. And uh, Ukrainian rocket artillery unit was operating south of the town we were in, and then they repositioned, right? That, that's what they do. And they repositioned, and there's been, you know, trading fire, moving around all day, evidently, repositioned through the town. Five minutes later, something big smacked into them. The, the unit that we were with, the people we were with, mentioned stuff about counter-battery and that's a possibility. And another group said, no, they just, it's the drones up all the time. I don't know what these guys are telling you about, which brings me to the thought that with the pervasive use of drones, 
and the ability to, it's almost like, I don't know what the prop word is, pre-counter battery fire, just reconnaissance, that even with the slow movement time tracking column for these tube artillery pieces, rocket artillery pieces, if you can see your enemy setting up, especially if it's something that's usually more highly mobile, that you can still be functionally effective, as unfortunately in this case it seems like the Russians were. And while we talk about response to fires and the slowness of the Russian system compared to the more quick nature of the Ukrainian system, we should not lose sight of the fact that with drone reconnaissance that is able to spot these uh, artillery units, even more mobile artillery units on the move, at least in one potentially outlier case, uh, the Russian forces are able to take advantage of that. And it changes the speed that we would otherwise expect them to be able to employ. Yeah, thanks a lot, CJ. And just to, to, to put a question to that before going to Andrew, but it, but it seems like the Russians are actually improving, we'll say, their kill chain in terms of integrating a drone reconnaissance to their actual fires. Is that just an assumption? Is that hit or miss? Or are you seeing the same thing, CJ? Yeah, as the language pointed out, that's a great case of either predictive counterfire or proactive counterfire. And this is why I always want to try and remove shoot and scoot from everyone's lingo, because it's not a doctrinal term, but also because it doesn't really explain what's going on. Uh, and, and what happened there, it sounds like, and this is a huge thing for the U.S. military to learn, is there's a balance between constantly moving and hiding well in a certain spot. And this is why, you know, it's always so funny to me to watch people get, quote unquote, mad at Ukrainians for staying in the same firing spot for weeks on end, piling up large amounts of artillery ammo that's expended to the side. And what you have to ask yourself is, well, what is the benefit? Well, the benefit is if they've got good overhead cover and they're far away, they can survive there for quite some time, especially if they're protected by air defenses, electronic warfare, things you don't see in the actual picture frame or video you're, you're being shown on Telegram and that's also the problem with moving so much as well as you, you subject other areas to attack. You know, perhaps that area was going through a spot that, you know, was actually even more sensitive than the artillery. Right. So there's there's definitely always I hate to say risk assessment, but I just like to say there's pro, pros and cons to moving a lot uh, and there's pros and cons to staying. But you have to understand what it is across the board because it's going to be different in every area. So. You know, just saying that Ukraine is dumb for staying in one spot is always just funny to me because, you know, we don't really know what else is going on. But especially in Donbass right now, there's only there's very limited spots people can fire artillery, uh, either because they've been pre-sighted for eight plus years, but also because, you know, as more and more guns come into the fray, you have to it's called, you know, terrain management officially in the military. But it's a very important thing because you don't want to, quote unquote, burn an area by going it all the time, and, and this goes for both sides, but you also don't want to create a situation where, you know, you have a predictable pattern of going forward and back. And so all these things, I mean, it's why a field artillery officer, especially over there, is, is having a very difficult time planning because you have to consider so many things that perhaps someone in a trench doesn't. And it's not because it's more dangerous by any stretch, but more so because there's so many factors uh, going on and drones do not make that any easier. 
So, so CJ, when I mean, when you're planning the locations of your batteries, is it already in the planning? You're looking at it and saying, okay, well, we can stay here for most likely a certain number of hours before we need to reposition, and we view this area as something we may be able to stay there for several days. Or is that already in the planning in your battery positioning? So it's called a uh, survivability move criteria or SMC, and it's yeah, it's either time based or number of missions based or conditions-based, it's uh, arguably the most important thing a battery commander does. And in Ukraine, I don't know how they do it because, you know, the other thing to consider as well, you know, in, in language learner's case, what we don't know, for example, is what that, you know, what I would just presume grad battery was doing, right? If they are supporting a defense of a position that's about to be overrun or an offense that needs those fires to, to you know, succeed in taking the territory they're aiming for, you might have to take incredible risk as the artillery person. You might have to be you might have to sit there, keep shooting, and get shot at the whole time, and just know that it's it's more important for you to get those rounds out than it is to displace. And that's kind of like a, a different thing that exists for artillery than other branches. I mean, I guess it's, it's somewhat similar to engineers in a breach, where it's not that they're you know more heroic or brave. It's just this is how combined arms work for you know NATO and specifically the U.S. and how it, you know it's going to work well for Ukraine. Is everything is centered around maneuver. Everything is centered around getting those infantry guys successfully through the area they're trying to do, even if it comes at, at a huge risk. And that's why all of this equipment is just so important. Yeah, definitely. The risk assessment is, is certainly different for the Ukrainian military, which uh, rightly so. Uh, Andrew, please. So I have a somewhat similar vein, but on the opposite end. So if, if you keep your artillery in one spot, you might feel safe, right? Um, you, you, you might even be safe. But what happens when your opponent has um you know a self-propelled gun that has much longer range than you have and precision rounds cj how 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 can you ambush these um or what, what's the value of an ambush in this sort of scenario uh ambushing with artillery i mean yeah it's not really a gun raid there's actually no term to really describe it but it is something that the u.s is starting to work on more and it's it's basically You'll use a couple guns to, and it's and the Russians do this too, and Ukraine does this as well. But you use a couple guns uh, that are of a large caliber, so one five two or one five five, to basically bait the enemy into shooting. So you, you basically do a fire mission that is not very important in order to draw out the counter battery fire, and that's where you're lying in wait with much bigger guns or at least longer ranging guns that have things like XCAL and whatnot, and that's. I could talk for hours, but we've seen so many successful cases on the Ukrainian side of using Excalibur rounds, which are somewhat expensive at $120,000, but they are extremely effective at hitting point targets. And it's not a tactic that the U.S. or any other NATO military really does uh, because the, the the mindset is these things are only designed for low collateral situations. And, and that's really the important thing here is understanding that from as a as current service member and other veterans can agree, there's so many lessons learned about how weapons work and how tactics work from the last 20 years of war that the U.S. has been engaged in uh, that are super beneficial. And, and people seem to think it's, you know, it's going to be different when we face off against anyone else. And the Ukrainians are showing us to a large degree, at least for artillery. It's, it's really not. There's so many valuable things you can take in, like how incredible these weapons are and just knowing how to use them. So this is going to be the thing I, I'm still waiting, Andrew, to see where this last batch of 100 to 200 self-propelled guns showed up because I have not seen them in Ukraine yet, but I'd, I'd imagine we'll be seeing them in the, in the very near future. 
Thanks, CJ. I, th- I think those self-propelled guns are in the same place as all of the other Western equipment. Uh, we've seen some pictures, but of course, none of them in, in combat. Any any update to that, Andrew, or is that still the same? Uh, I haven't I haven't seen the Italian guns get in yet, or or uh, or the others. Um, obviously, there's crabs. Crabs have been fantastic, and there's the Caesars and the Susannas. Those are they're all really good guns. <laughs> but uh, the the other ones, I, I'm not. I haven't seen them. And I assume when you were talking about this this sort of trap, this counter battery trap, you you were maybe referring to the situation near Kupiansk where the Ukrainian self-propelled guns um, obliterated Russian artillery. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, from what I understand, they would... Um, I don't know if this was like a regular thing or like their plan or whatever, but they... You you, you witness... Uh, you, you see them set up and you might see them shoot for a few days and then uh, all of a sudden they might get shot by uh, a crab. <laughs> uh, they might get blasted off uh, you know uh uh, from a, a distance that they didn't even know they could get hit from that far. Great. So we've just got a couple of minutes left. Maybe just, uh, CJ, uh, from you, any any final thoughts, anything we should keep in mind, anything you're looking at uh, for the next days or weeks? Yeah, the biggest thing is, um, I would just say overall, is understand that this, this fight's going to take some time, you know, and, and Ukraine needs a lot in order to, to beat Russia. And I think that's I think people are going to want to really focus in on territory regained, territory lost. And what you have to sort of ask yourself, and I honestly don't know the answer here, is what is Ukraine's goal overall, uh, at least operationally? Is it to destroy as many Russian forces as quickly as possible, which is what some people have argued should be the goal in the past, You know, create a situation where they, they sort of trap Russians in a certain area and, and wipe them out in order to force the rest to withdraw, or... Should they just be focused on terrain? Should they just be focused on liberating towns that have been captured from them and where, you know, obviously horrible things are occurring? These two strategies, we'll call them for this case, are, you know, they seem very similar, but they really couldn't be more different because how they're actually executed is uh, incredibly different. And if you try and do both at once, like Russia did in the initial invasion, where they, they tried to do basically, a, a, you know, a bomb rush maneuver into Kiev. But also tried to, to bomb as many you know military facilities as possible, right? They, they seem to kind of be all over the place with what their their goal was. It's one of the reasons why they failed. It wasn't necessarily that yes, they didn't really bring enough people, they didn't really plan well, I'm sure, but they were not really uh, didn't have unity of effort in what they're going for. So what I'm most interested in is sort of what is Ukraine's overall kind of mission statement here? Are they trying to you know through this period of time, summer into fall? reclaim as much land as possible and, and give the Ukrainians trapped in those areas the most freedoms they can? Or are they are they looking for a um, solid blow? Because what people have to understand is if they're you know trying to take out uh, the Russian army in Ukraine, it, it could be extremely costly for them and re- could require a lot more support quickly. If they're trying to reclaim all their land in a way where they don't lose as many soldiers as that first option, people have to realize that it could take some time. It could be years until they're complete. So kind of how Ukraine is supported, whether in the short term or long term, will really depend on what their goals are. And at the end of the day, the most important thing is that's aligned with what everyone's going to give them. And so that's why those planning conferences, those war games are so important that Ukraine is not just, you know, they're driving the conversation, 
but they understand how they're going to be supported in the future. And that will lead to them winning more than anything else. Thank you very much, CJ. I know that, you know, we haven't seen you online because you were very busy, but you were on a podcast recently. Can you just tell us a little bit, when was that podcast? Where can we find more of, of your insights uh, recently? So I recently uh, got back from training and I headed off to California to the uh, Urban Warfare Center at the 40th Infantry Division, which is the, the California uh, National Guard, and was a part of the Urban uh, Planners course uh, led by General Woolridge and uh, Colonel Spencer, who most you know, with many classes from Major Giroux, who most you know. And I sat down with Colonel Spencer afterward to do a, a podcast about about Ukraine, about sort of how the artillery was used overall the 15 months, 16 months, and then also specifically for uh, urban settings. And the reason why this is so important is because, well, as everyone knows, cities are where politics happen and war is politics uh, by other means. And also because as city, as the whole world becomes more urban, the ability to just ignore cities will go away uh, more and more as time goes on. So it's important to, to use artillery in cities, but also important to use it in a way that's as safe as possible for civilians. There's a lot of courses on civilian harm mitigation and the legality of fires, because as we know, Russia, you know, indiscriminately attacks Ukrainian cities and, and you know, Ukraine does what they have to, but uses as much precision as possible to try and prevent uh, unnecessary civilian casualties. And the last thing I'll say on that is, why is that all important? Well, uh, whether you, you are a country that cares about civilians or not, international law or not, realize that civilians have a massive vote on the battlefield. And that goes for whether or not they're retweeting your space that goes for whether or not they're sending you aid or if they're picking up a weapon to fight you. So it, it we kind of have to move past a lot of the thinking of the past 20 years where we're, we're just saying we're helping civilians because it's the quote unquote right thing to do. We have to understand that they are um, because of social media and many other reasons, you know, a very important feature on the battlefield to protect and help as much as possible because you, you know, you're, you're fighting on the right side. So just, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll post it on, on my Twitter feed after this if, if you're interested. But definitely, yeah, Colonel Spencer's the urban warfare guru. Uh, huge fan of Ukraine. He's been two times. He has a goal to be in Bakhmut by July. It's a little optimistic, but hey, you, you never know what happens. Well, thank you very much, uh, CJ. Thank you very much for being with us. Andrew as well, John, uh, Artois, everybody who was, who was contributing. Thank you all very much. And I'll kick it back to you, Joseph. Thank you, Charles, and thank you everyone for listening to Tochni Weekly. We broadcast every Sunday live at 1800 UTC. A recording of this episode and all of our content is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and a large number of other podcast platforms, so please do check us out there and uh, subscribe through uh, whatever mechanism they have. Uh, we also recommend Andrew's weekly stream for more information from the front lines. He broadcasts at midnight UTC every Wednesday, and that's uh, 8 p.m. Tuesday, New York time. Our resident Tochen economist, Ben, will be interviewing uh, guest Exit 266 for an update on the situation with the Black Sea grain deal. Uh, it will take place at 1500 UTC, Thursday, June 8th. Thanks very much again to our guests, Joseph Place and, of course, CJ for joining us this week. Thanks to our panel. Thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in. And we'll see everyone next week. Slava Ukraini. behalf of the brain. On behalf of our warriors. On behalf of the brain.
wings for freedom. Шановні громадяни України,